It's beautiful to see all those orange shirts. They're, they're, they're getting close to um, outnumbering the rest of us adults, and I, I love that. There's a lot of, and, and the orange shirt's a great color, because Leanne said, are all the inmates coming up? And I said, no, 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 they're not, not inmates, but uh, the orange definitely makes them stand out, so it's easy to spot our kids. We're blessed to have all these children, and um, we're, we're so thankful for all the different uh, teachers and Brittany and, and all the Sunday school teachers who are investing in their lives. It makes such a difference. So thank you to all of you who are doing that. I want to invite you now to uh, bow with me once more, and let's ask God to bless his word. Father in heaven, we this morning gather as your people, as people who believe in your word, and today we simply declare once more that we believe your word. We believe that it is living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it is for us today. And so we pray, Lord, that we would receive your word, that you would give us by your spirit hearts to not only receive your word, but to live it out in every part of our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night of March 24th, 1944, 76 POWs, including eight Canadians, managed to escape the German prison camp named Stalag Luft III. They did so through a tunnel they codenamed Harry. The plan to dig these escape tunnels had been over a year in the making since the spring of 1943. One of the most important co-conspirators was a Royal Canadian Air Force flying officer named Wally Floody from Chatham, Ontario. Flying Officer Floody worked in the mining industry in Kirkland Lake, Ontario, which gave him the expertise he needed in the prison camp to survey, design, and engineer the escape tunnels. According to his obituary, his role in the project was so highly valued that the camp leaders forbade him to join an earlier escape attempt, saying, We need you for the tunnels. The three tunnels were nicknamed Tom, Dick, and Harry. Shows their humor in this escape um, exercise. Well, Tom, Dick, and Harry, the reason they decided on three was they figured probably one or two of them might be discovered along the way. And so dozens of men labored to build the three escape tunnels secretly right under the Germans' noses. The work was dangerous and difficult. The structures were extremely complex with sophisticated electrical and ventilation systems required. The prisoners became experts at scrounging and reusing materials. But one of the the tunnels, codenamed Dick, was deemed unsafe and abandoned. Then the tunnel Tom was discovered by camp guards in September of 1943. And so finally, all work focused on completing Harry, which was planned to end in the woods outside the camp wire. But the tunnel entrance fell slightly short of the woods, and the escapees discovered This only too late, for on the night of the escape attempt, as they were leaving through the tunnel, one man at a time, it was only wide enough for one man to go in single file, 200 men were designated to go out, but only 76 made it. The discovery was made as the men were fleeing, and so the men ran for their lives, all 76 of them desperate to elude their captors. The Gestapo then initiated one of the most intense manhunts of the entire war, estimated to have involved some one million Germans in the effort to recapture the escaped 76 Allied airmen. Sadly, the Gestapo were largely successful. In the aftermath of the escape, 
50 of the recaptured escapees were secretly and promptly murdered by execution by the Gestapo on a direct order from Hitler himself. Six of those murdered men were Canadians. 23 more were returned to the prison camp. And of the 76 brave men who attempted to escape that night, only three made a home run. That was the term they used for getting clean away and making it to their home countries. Three out of 76. Yet the entire episode became known in history simply as the Great Escape. Some of you might be thinking about making a great escape to the south right now to escape this weather. Maybe not quite as dire as the escape that those 76 men made. But as impressive as that escape attempt was, today we are going to resume a series on the greatest escape in history known simply as the Exodus. Now some of you will recall, I hope, that we began this series two years ago. So if you feel that two years is a long time to work through Exodus, well, let me just remind you that the Israelites wandered around the desert for 40 years. So I don't think we're moving too slowly yet. We've still got 38 years to work with to get the series done. So, Now, to refresh our memories, the English word Exodus is derived from the Greek term meaning the way out. The way out. Now, I'd chosen that phrase as the title for this series because it summarizes the entire narrative of the children of Israel trying to find a way out of slavery in Egypt and into a new life of freedom in the promised land. However, this incredible account is more than just an exciting story of miracles, plagues, and a great escape. It is also a foreshadowing of the plan of salvation that God would ultimately reveal to the entire world through Jesus Christ. That God would provide for us the way out of slavery to sin and into the promised land of heaven. But there's just one problem. The 76 airmen who escaped Stalag Luft III weren't home free just because they'd escaped the prison. The children of Israel weren't done their journey just because they'd escaped Egypt either. And so too, the Christian's journey is not complete simply because we've started following Jesus. For we're not standing in heaven yet. We're still on the way. We're still on the road to the promised land. And as most of you know, that road is not always an easy one. In fact, Jesus said the way is narrow. And few there are that find it. It's not the easy way to heaven. And yet it is the only way to heaven. And so we know from personal experience, this road is not always easy. In fact, sometimes it can be very difficult. The greatest test, as always, is the test of faith along the way. When times get tough, will we trust God and continue to follow even when the road is difficult? Or will we think that he's forgotten about us? Or maybe think that we have a better plan to move forward and take matters into our own hands? Well, this is where we will pick up the story in Exodus, with Israel encamped at the foot of of Mount Sinai. Now to set the scene, I would invite you to open your Bibles if you have them and you can flip to Exodus chapter 19. We're not going to read it all, but I'll give you a recap of Exodus chapter 19 because here we see that first and foremost, the people are confronted by the awesomeness of God. 
To set the scene, Exodus, Exodus chapter 19 describes how God's presence in all of his awesome glory and splendor has descended onto the top of Mount Sinai in the form of visible fire, accompanied by lightning, thunder, ear-piercing trumpet blasts, billowing smoke, and in fact, the whole mountain is trembling violently. Now, not surprisingly, it also tells us that everyone in the camp was trembling right along with it. But then something even more incredible than this happens. After descending on the mountain in all of his glory and splendor and power, this incredible thing happens. God spoke the Ten Commandments in an audible voice to all the people, not just Moses. Now, if that surprises you, well, that's because for most of us, we've heard the simplified version of this story, often simplified down for the sake of children's stories and cohesive videos, that we assume, mistakenly, that Moses was given all of the commandments way up on the mountaintop while the people just stayed down below the entire time. But a careful reading of the text shows otherwise. I would invite you to turn to Exodus 24. And in Exodus 24, verse 25, it ends with Moses going down the mountain in order to warn the people not to approach the mountain themselves or God would break out against them. They were to be separate from the mountain. They were to come to the foot of the mountain, but no further. And so it ends with Moses going down the mountain in Exodus 24, 25. So now we flip over and the people are gathered at the foot of the mountain. Pardon me. Wrong chapter. Exodus 19, verse 25. There you go. Exodus 19. Skipping ahead in my notes. In Exodus 20, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, clearly states, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then after identifying himself, the God who is speaking to them, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, he identifies himself. God proceeds to speak the Ten Commandments directly. And just in case it's not immediately clear who God is speaking to, verses 18 to 19 tells us, When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But don't let God speak directly to us, or we will die. Don't let God speak directly to us, or we will die. So here we see that actually the entire nation of Israel, over two million people, gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, directly heard the audible voice of God speaking the Ten Commands. And these Ten Commands would become the foundational laws of the nation, and yes, of all Western civilization to come for the next 3,500 years. How incredible is that? That this wasn't just a private introduction to Moses of the Ten Commandments, now you relay them to the people. God spoke them in an audible voice to the entire nation gathered. How incredible. Not just Moses with a private audience, a corporate experience that was the birth of the special nation of Israel, God's chosen people. 
But now how do the people respond to this special honor of having God speak to them directly in an audible, terrifying voice? Well, quite simply, they are terrified. They're terrified. They are trembling. They are shaking. They are fearing for their lives. And so they beg Moses. Moses, you go up and speak to God alone and relay the words to us because if we hear him any more directly, we will die. Now talk about making an impression. Collectively, as a nation, this is not a moment you forget. This is not a moment that just, oh yeah, that was cool when that happened on the weekend. No, this is, this is something else entirely. A moment they should never, ever forget when God in all of his terrifying glory and splendor and power speaks to the nation directly. Now put yourself for a moment in their place. Think about it. These are real people. This isn't just some made-up story. These are, this is a real factual event that happened in history with real people, with real thoughts and emotions and feelings, experiencing the full power and glory of God coming right in their faces. Now put yourself in their shoes for just a moment. How do you think you'd handle that? How do you think you'd respond to hearing the audible voice of God thundering down in fire and smoke and lightning from the top of a mountain? How do you think you would respond? Consider for a moment if God chose to reveal himself in that way to us right here at Clarny Mennonite Church. He could, you know. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who chose to reveal himself back then. He could do so today if he so chose. He's just as capable. If that were to happen, how would you respond? Would you run? Would you duck and cover? Would you dare to approach his, at his invitation? Later on in the Old Testament, we see just such an example where the, the prophet Isaiah He's ministering in the temple and God chooses to reveal his glorious splendor to Isaiah in just such a way. And his glory fills the temple and there's, there's cherubim and seraphim ministering and Isaiah sees them. And how does he respond? He falls flat on his face and the very first thing he says is a confession of depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I have sinned. I am a man of unclean lips, and my people are a people of unclean lips. That was how Isaiah responded to the glory of God. He became incredibly aware of how sinful he was. And that's always the first thing that happens whenever we are confronted by the awesome holiness and glory of God. We see Simon Peter in the New Testament reacting this way to Jesus as well, following a miraculous catch of fish. Luke chapter 5, verse 8, we read, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Romans 3.23 states it plainly, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means whenever we are confronted by God's glory, what that shines a light on in ourselves immediately is our sin. It can't help but do otherwise when we are confronted by God and his awesome glory. And my friends, when we think about this, I I just want to be clear. We haven't fallen short by his glory by just a little bit either. It's not like God's grading us on the curve that it's like, you know, well, he's 100%, so we're like 97.5%. You know, it's just a little bit of a gap that we're short. 
No, my friends, it's a it's 100% short. If he's 100%, we're 0%. There is no... There's no just, we just didn't quite measure up. We're so far from God's glory that the only response is not to say, well, Lord, if I tried a little bit harder, I could get up to your level when we're confronted by him. No, the only response is to fall flat on one's face and to say, Lord, I am a sinner. This is what happens when we're confronted by the awesome glory of God. For every last one of us has fallen so short of God's glory, that the only thing, hear this, the only thing that we should rightfully expect is like Israel, fiery judgment and death. When Israel said to Moses, go talk to God directly because we can't handle it or we will die, that wasn't a metaphor, my friends. They were actually afraid of dying. And I don't think that that was an invalid fear either. They were confronted by the awesome holiness of God and they feared rightfully for their lives because they were aware of how far short they were of God. Hebrews 12, 29 states this about God and his nature. Our God is a consuming fire. Being consumed by fire is certainly what the children of Israel feared. And so they begged Moses to go and mediate between them and God. And so Moses does. And so first, here we see they've been confronted by the awesomeness of God. And then second, the people are confronted by the covenant of God. The people were to understand that what the Lord was doing here at Mount Sinai was nothing less than establishing with them a covenant. A covenant based upon their obedience to his commands. And in doing so, God was forging them into a nation over which he would be their ruler. He would be their king, he would be their lord, and there would be no earthly king. And this is why all the people heard the words at the heart of the law, the Ten Commandments. All the people were entering into this covenant, not just the leadership. It was a collective. As a nation, they were all given the choice. Here are my commandments. Here is my offer to covenant with you. They weren't just given to Moses, who then relayed them to the people. God didn't want the people thinking of Moses as their king. They were to be a nation whose king was God himself. And in giving them the law, God was turning them from a mob into a nation, a theocracy under God himself. And so if they were to enter this covenant, to obey would mean blessings almost beyond description. Not only for themselves, but that according to the promise God made to Abraham, he would bless them to be so numerous they would be like stars in the sky, sand on the seashore, and they would become a blessing to all nations. So in keeping the covenant, Israel would become a chosen special nation to God that he would use to minister to the entire world. A nation of priests was the idea that God was, was working with. God would be their king. They would be under his direct rule. To obey would be to live a blessed life that would be a blessing to the world. But now hear this. God also had another side of the covenant. And that would be to disobey would be to bring terrible judgment and calamities in reverse but direct proportion to the blessing. However great the blessing would be for obedience, the consequences for disobedience would be equally bad. So here it was before them. Life and death. Enter the covenant, obey, you will be blessed with life in abundance. But be warned, 
to disobey will bring judgment and death. And so this is what they're presented with. And so here, after everyone hears the Ten Commandments, Moses ascends the mountain to receive the remaining law that God would give to the people. At their request, they said, Moses, you go hear the rest of it and bring it to us. We'll trust you. So Moses goes up the mountain. And there, we won't read it, but you can skim through Exodus chapters 21 to 23, where we see a great deal of detail given as to what the covenant would all pertain to the life and the regulations and the instructions that God would give to the people. And so finally, after receiving all of this from the Lord, Moses returns in chapter 24, where we read in verses 3 to 4. Then Moses went down to the people and repeated all the instructions and regulations the Lord had given him. All the people answered with one voice. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. Verse 4. Then Moses carefully wrote down all the Lord's instructions. Verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. Then Moses took the blood from the basins. He sprinkled it over the people, declaring, Look, this blood confirms the covenant the Lord has made with you in giving you these instructions. Now, don't miss the significance of this moment. This is a pivotal moment in the narrative of Scripture. This moment sets the stage for everything that follows in the Bible and how God deals with Israel with this point forwards. Here, Israel has directly heard God's voice, and they have received his covenant commands. They willingly, and it's very important to note, with one voice, that means everyone is in agreement, the entire nation, this isn't just Moses, this is everyone, with one voice, they say, we will do everything the Lord has commanded, we will obey. And finally, having heard their affirmation that, yes, we will enter the covenant with you, it is sealed with literal blood being sprinkled over the people. Now, think about that for a second. Imagine if we did that in church. You're like, but it's my good church clothes. Uh, Blood doesn't wash out that easily, right? And the people are gathered around. They're literally getting blood splattered on them. Why the blood? Well, already we see a foreshadowing that this covenant is still going to be sealed in blood. There would be an elaborate system of sacrifices and atonement required to cover for the people's sins through sacrifice, through confession, through repentance, and the priests would have to enact this. And and the people, of course, understood it on a very basic level. But with the full revelation of the New Testament, we already see that the blood being sprinkled over the people is foreshadowing. The power of that blood came not from the animal. It's looking ahead, and God is looking to the cross of Jesus Christ the perfect lamb, that every one of these that would be sacrificed beforehand was only a foreshadowing of. And so even then in this covenant, the people are sealed with sprinkled blood covered over them. The vows have been spoken, and then, like a fairy tale wedding, they lived happily ever after. And uh, they just obeyed, and, and everything was great. They never took a single misstep. They went in the promised land. They followed God everywhere they went, and and they became a blessing to all the nations. The end. Is that how the story went? No, not at all. Not even close. But at least, at least the people obeyed for the generation that made the vows, right? Right? No, still not. 
Not that generation, but they saw God. They heard his voice. Well, at least they kept it for a decade, right? Like 10 years, this made a pretty good impression. At least 10 years of of obedience, they took the promised land and, and all that was good, right? No, still not. Okay, what are we getting down to? They didn't do it for a, a decade, maybe a year. Could they have held on for a year to the, to the vows they made at the mountain? No, 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 they couldn't, they didn't. Point three, the people forget God, and it doesn't take very long. Exodus twenty four eighteen tells us, Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So up there on the mountain in the the glory cloud of God, and the people are camped down at the bottom, God's up there having a very, very long talk with Moses. And he's giving him all sorts of instructions on how to lead the people and what they are to do, including building a tabernacle. And and it's, it's incredible, all of the things that God reveals to Moses while he's up on the mountain. But while he's up there for 40 days... The people are down in the camp, and we skip ahead to Exodus 32 and verse 1. When the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us here from the land of Egypt. How long did it take the people? Forty days. Forty days to forget. 40 days from being confronted by the awesome holiness of God. 40 days from hearing his audible voice thundering over them. 40 days from solemnly affirming everything the Lord has commanded we will do, we will obey. 40 days is all it took for them to say, this fellow Moses... He's just taken too long. We don't even know what happened to him. Maybe he fell in a cliff or something and he's dead. We don't even know if he's coming back. God's taking too long. Let's take matters into our own hands. Let's make our own God to lead us on from here. Come on, Aaron. Make us a God. And sadly, inexplicably, knowing knowing on every level that this is wrong, that he shouldn't be doing it, Aaron just gives right in to the people's request. Without even a word of protest, it's not recorded. He simply says, bring me your gold earrings. And he collects the gold earrings from the people. And remember, they had a lot of gold earrings. Because when they left Egypt, they plundered the nation. After the the 10th plague and the firstborn were struck dead, the people of Egypt so badly wanted them to leave that as they were leaving their houses, the Egyptians willingly gave them their, their wealth. So they, they would have just heaped gold and jewelry on them. So when Moses says, give me your gold earrings, they've got them in abundant supply. So there was no shortage in the camp. And so the people willingly, yes, here's our gold earrings. Aaron melts them down. And obviously drawing on the image of one of the pagan gods from Egypt, there was a bull, was one of the objects of worship in Egypt. Drawing on that imagery, Aaron makes a golden calf. And he says, and verse 4 says, When the people saw the golden calf, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Forty days. And it's not as though they weren't told to not build idols. In fact, again and again and again, even within the Ten Commandments, right there, 
is do not make a graven image. Right there in the Ten Commandments, they all heard it. The next things repeated to Moses are no idols, no idols, no idols. Don't do it. And yet what do they do? The very first thing, an idol, a golden calf. And so here we look at this text and we hear the, the, the amount of time, 40 days passes from being confronted by the awesome holiness of God and making this sacred covenant vow in 40 days and they go exactly against it and we sit here today in our comfortable pews and we look down on them as dismal failures and we say, oh Israel, you silly, silly people. How could you do this? How could you be so foolish? But I know from personal experience, we all have golden calf moments of life, don't we? Moments where we think God's taking too long. Moments where we forget or we just don't care. Moments where we take matters into our own hands and do the very thing we promised we wouldn't. And it's incredibly easy to say that, yes, we will follow, we will obey God's commands. It's easy to say, but it's not so easy to do, is it? We all know from experience, don't we? We have all stood in this sanctuary. We have heard his word, and we have confessed our sins before him. We have pledged that we will put our sins behind us and follow Jesus' pathway for our lives. We sing it in our songs, we affirm it in our covenants, we come to the communion table. But let me ask you, after being in the sanctuary and confessing your sin to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to walk and I will walk in newness of life, leaving that old way behind me, let me ask you just honestly, how long did it take you to fall back into an old habit that you said you'd leave? How long did it sometimes take you to fall back into that old sin that you confessed? 40 days? If you're like me, chances are you've done a lot less than 40 days. Kids, have you ever left church and on the way home gotten into an argument and a fight with your brother or sister in the car? Has this ever happened? It's happened in my vehicle a few times. You know, we come here and we worship Jesus and we learn about God and what's right and we go home and in the car we're fighting over something as silly as which restaurant we're going to go to after church. And blows are exchanged. Sometimes it only takes minutes for us to forget. But adults, how many of us have asked God to create in us a clean heart and then we go back, maybe that very night, to watching the same movies that make our hearts unclean? Or going back to the same old corners of the internet that we know we have no business being in? Did you ever gossip about a fellow Christian on the way home from church? Or complain about something in the service you didn't like? How quickly we forget God's commandments and our own vows and follow our own sinful hearts. 40 days? Ha! We're capable, every last one of us, of failing even faster. Yes, we say, oh, it's not a golden calf. But idols are idols. Whether they take a visible form or not, when we have an idol in our life, a spiritual idol that we're holding on to, to God it's the same thing. The speed that we fail is much faster at times than 40 days. And so for us to sit here and look down on Israel, we need to look in the mirror and recognize we're all guilty of doing the same thing. We're all capable of it. And so I ask, what do we deserve? What did Israel deserve? Exodus 32, 7 to 10. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. What did the people deserve? Nothing less than God's anger and destruction. His wrath poured out in all his righteous fury is what the people deserved. And my friends, make no mistake about it, that's all we deserve for our sins too. And now here we see Moses is faced with a seemingly impossible dilemma. To just stay up on the mountain and steer clear of God's wrath that he's going to pour out on the people. And the temptation, or not even the temptation, the offer from God himself that he would use Moses to become the father of a great nation. Or would he intercede for the people, identify with the people, and so risk being destroyed with them? Well, verse 11 tells us Moses makes his choice. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. And in the next verses, we see how he goes on to intercede and plead on the people's behalf before God that he would show them mercy rather than wrath. And incredibly, at the end of his request, his, his petition, his intercession, incredibly, the verse just says, the Lord listened to Moses. And he relented of his anger. The Lord listened to Moses and he relented. In this way, Moses was an archetype of the greater mediator yet to come. God's own son. In the New Testament, referring back to this story, Hebrews 12, 18 and 19 says this. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom and storm to trumpet blasts or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged them no further word be spoken. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. And so, my friends, as we consider the awesome holiness of God, how thankful are you for Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant? How thankful are you that he is your personal mediator, just as Moses was a mediator for the people that day? And just as Moses stood between the wrath of God that the people rightfully deserved for their all-out, just flagrant, throwing it back in God's face, the covenant they had just swore an oath that they would keep, that they would obey, they deserved nothing but fiery judgment breaking out against them. And yet Moses stood in between and he said, Lord, show mercy. Yes, they deserve wrath, but show mercy. He stood between, and so too Jesus stood between God, the wrath that we deserve, and he said, I will take the wrath that they deserve on myself. And so let me ask you again, how thankful are you for Jesus, the one who stands between you and God, 
the one who sealed the new covenant of grace with his own sprinkled blood. How thankful are you that now through Jesus, we not only are given full access to enter heavenly Jerusalem, permission to lift our voices with the angel choir, have our names written in the Lamb's book of life, but more, that now we may approach Almighty God, the judge of all, with freedom, with boldness. How thankful should we be? What should our response be? Well, Hebrews 10, 19-22 tells us, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. There is a story that one night, the great German reformer Martin Luther, he went to sleep troubled deeply about his sin. And in a dream, he saw an angel standing by a blackboard. And at the top of the board was Luther's name. And the angel stood there with chalk in hand, and he began listing all of Luther's many sins. And as the list began to fill the blackboard, Luther shuddered in despair, feeling the weight of his sins and that there were so many that he could never be forgiven. But suddenly in his dream, he saw a pierced hand writing above the list these words. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And as Luther watched in amazement, the blood began to flow from the wounded hand and it washed the record clean. My friends, I know that right now you may not feel clean enough to boldly go before God today. Like Israel, you may want to keep God at a safe distance. And like Luther, you may feel your sins are too many to be forgiven. That's what your guilty conscience may be telling you this morning. That your golden calf moment, whatever it may be, has just voided you, disqualified you from God's love. But my friends, the word of God, which cannot lie, and the blood of Jesus is telling us something different. And it's true whether you feel clean today or not. Through faith in Jesus, the blood makes you completely clean that you may go right into the presence of God with a sincere heart, fully clean. How incredible is that? And I invite you to join with me in prayer as we do so today. Heavenly Father, as we again invoke your name and we come boldly into your presence, Lord, we do so with humble and grateful hearts. For we know, Lord, that just as Israel deserved your wrath, just as they deserved fiery judgment being poured out from you for their disobedience happening so quickly, after solemnly affirming that they would keep all of your commands, Lord, we recognize we deserve the same. But I thank you, Jesus, that like Moses, you stood in the gap. 
You stood between us and the wrath that we deserved. And not only did you intercede, you said, I will take the wrath of all sin upon myself. I will pay the price in full that the people may go free and be free to enter your presence. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus, for being our mediator. Thank you that your blood washes us completely and utterly, that even our guilty consciences can be truly cleaned and set free because of the great power of your finished work. And so, Lord, I pray that for anyone today who's feeling that that burden of a guilty conscience, oh, Lord, I pray for them right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as they confess their sin to you, that in you they will find forgiveness, a free pardon, and mercy and grace to not only cover their sin, but to set them right in your presence that they may go boldly before God without fear. And so, Father, thank you that this way is open through your way, Jesus Christ. We love you, and we pray that today we will walk from this place in holy awe of who you are and your salvation for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.